If you have a Bible in hand, grab it. Open up to the Gospel according to Luke. We're in a series tracing the theme of light in the Bible. We'll be in Isaiah today, but we'll begin here, Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. We'll read this, pray, and then have a seat. When I was a kid, Christmas Day was a day for rising early at the first light of day, sunrise, and for going downstairs by the tree. For my father, it was a day for sleeping in, taking a long shower, getting some eggs, and then wandering over by the tree to see if we wanted to start unwrapping. And that's exactly what I'd be in the middle of right now if I wasn't here with you. Christmas morning traditions are one thing, but may we never lose our sense of expectation for all that God has promised and planned for us in Jesus Christ. Let's read Luke chapter one, verses 68 through 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Let's pray. Father, help us as we come to your word now to behold the wondrous mystery in Christ, in his coming, in his dying, and in his resurrection. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. When I was a kid, there were a few things my mother would call me. Pumpkin eater and sunshine. One of those I understood, sunshine. I brightened her day. One of them I did not understand. And eventually I called her out on it and it stopped, and that was pumpkin eater. I didn't get it, I must have been 10 years old when it occurred to me that I didn't want to be called pumpkin eater anymore. Well, I've never understood where it came from. I chased down the origin, sure enough, the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes was on it from 1901. And if you say, well, obviously, Trent, you should have known this. 1901, so, Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had a wife but couldn't keep her. He put her in a pumpkin shell and there he kept her very well. Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had another and didn't love her. Peter learned to read and spell and then he loved her very well. Pumpkin eater. Sometimes it helps to chase down an expression and sometimes it doesn't help at all to chase down an expression. 
I'll be calling her this afternoon to figure out where that came from. And I'll probably be calling my children pumpkin eaters. It's a cute name. Well, today we're going to chase down the origin of an expression. And it's going to help us out a whole lot. Not only to understand what Zechariah was praying and saying and praising God for, but it's as a foundation for the rest of our series in the Bible through the theme of light. In Luke 1, Zechariah praises God and he was practically cutting the umbilical cord for baby Baptist John, but that's not who he was mostly happy about. And isn't that rare? You have a baby and you're really happy for another baby. Uh, He's mostly happy for Mary's baby and Joseph's baby, Jesus. The Lord sent John to point to Jesus and he is off to a very good start. Jesus, Zechariah says, and here's the expression for the morning, is the sunrise visiting his people. The sunrise visiting his people. Well, what does he mean by sunrise? Zechariah means very much more than what my mom had in mind for us kids. He has on his mind a light not for a home or the faces of parents, but for the world. He has in mind a light to end the wicked oppressors like the Romans of his day, as an example. He has on his mind the transformation of his people into a people who serve the Lord in righteousness and without fear. And he has on his mind the full forgiveness of sins so that, he says, even the shadow of death is a safe place. These are tremendous expectations for a little baby, way out of proportion with the size of the child. In other words, as one pastor put it, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. So where did these expectations come from? Why see the, in the sunrise of heaven in the son of a carpenter from Nazareth? I wouldn't see the sunrise from heaven in the son of a carpenter from Nazareth were I Zechariah in his shoes unless I was visited by an angel. But even that's not really the full explanation for what's on Zechariah's lips here. The angel's announcement would have meant little in context apart from the book of Isaiah. And so turn there with me to the book of Isaiah. This is where we'll spend our time this morning. Your index in your Bible will help you. We can get a little lost when we're turning to the prophets. If you find the Psalms in the middle of your Bible, take a few turns to the right and you may find Isaiah. We'll be in chapter nine to begin. Well, this week, one of my urchins accused me of not having the Christmas spirit. And I don't remember what it is that I had said or done. It wasn't grumpy. Uh, But I'm going to make up for it right now by giving you my outline as a gift up front. Isaiah can be broken down nicely three ways. And we're going to make three stops in Isaiah. A stop in each part of the book. A stop in each of the brightest parts of those sections. To discern, to apprehend, and to feel the heat from three distinct rays of God's saving sunshine bursting from this book into the heart of Zechariah and out his mouth in praise to the Lord. Here's the outline. 
God with us, God for us, God over us. If the book of Isaiah ever intimidates you, just remember those nine words. God with us, God for us, God over us. First, God with us. This is the first ray of sunshine emanating from this letter. Let's read together verses two through seven of chapter nine. And let me just note, we'll be reading some longer passages at times. Think of this like flying over mountains. We don't always need to make sense of every turn of the terrain that we see. We're working big picture this morning, so stay at that altitude with me. Verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his children, burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's reflect together on four words. First, darkness. One word to capture a very dynamic experience of Israel at the time. Gloom, anguish, oppression, and trampling are words used. A world, we could say, for all intents and purposes, without sun. And you may feel that way. We get a lot of sunshine in Albuquerque, but your life may be a world without sun. If it is a life apart from Christ, if it is a life in which you do not know God, it may very well be a life without sun in your experience, or you will wake up to that darkness in due time. Keep listening. But it's not the darkness in the world around her, Israel, that's the problem. It's the darkness in the world inside of her. That's the problem. Chapter one describes Jerusalem. You don't have to turn there. It's the epicenter, Jerusalem, the epicenter of God's people. And he's pretty direct. He says this, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her. But now murderers, your silver has become dross and your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. And they do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. She loves everything but her husband, the Lord. And, as we, and when we love other things besides the Lord, those things take from us. And through us, they take from others. 
They take life. They don't give life. Life only comes from the Lord. And this is God's people. And this is the explanation for why they are trampled and oppressed. In the old covenant, there was blessing for obedience and there was cursing for disobedience. A direct one-to-one. It is not that way in the new covenant under Christ who has taken our cursing for us that we might be blessed. But in the old covenant, Israel, that's what we're seeing. He's writing to those sent to exile or in exile because of their sin. But this is not all the Lord will bring to them. He will turn his hand against them, he says, and he will purify them by punishing them. And verse 26 of verse uh, of chapter one, sorry. Afterward, you shall be a city called righteousness, the faithful city. So this faithless city of unrighteousness, God promises will become a faithful city of righteousness, called even by the name righteousness. The faithful made, faithless made faithful. And that's the movement of Isaiah from one side of Isaiah to another from the faithless city to the faithful city. And that is also the movement of the Bible. God will do this. How we need to hear that this morning and how I need to hear that God is about this work. He tells of a day when his people will say to their idols, be gone to their sin, be gone of a day when the Lord will bind up the brokenness of his people and heal the wounds inflicted by his blow and when they will be so radiant, so radiant his people will be, he says in chapter 30, that the moon will be like the sun and the sun will be like seven suns. The brightness of their life and of the people will be astonishing and beyond comprehension and the Lord will do it. And this movement from faithless to faithful people raises an important question. How can the city of darkness become the city of light? Or to personalize that, how can your life of darkness become a life of light? Step one, admit that you're blind and can't see. We come into this world with the very problem that Israel on the pages before us is manifesting. My friends, you will not grasp your need for Christ's light until you come to see and come clean on the darkness of your own sinful heart. There are lights that can make life seem like it's going all right, but they are but candles that will go out with wind or time. They are not suns. Darkness, at the end of the day, follows from the human heart. And at some point, if the Lord is saving us, we finally get this. It's when we see darkness for darkness because we're starting to see Jesus' light for light. And we realize that's where, that's where it is. And it's where I must be. Maybe you've been awoken to the darkness of life and your heart in this past year. Maybe one of your makeshift lights went out. That happens. And it's hard. It can also be a gift if it forces us to confront our need for our Lord. Whatever the case, maybe the Lord has good for news for you this morning, and he does. Word number two, child, child. 
into Isaiah's ancient world of raging superpowers like Assyria and like Babylon and like the Romans afterward. And that only gets us to the first century. God sends his answer in a baby, a little baby. And that's how God does it, isn't it? He promised Eve a son who would crush the serpent. God promised Abraham a son. Moses' story began. He was a baby in the Nile. And God promised David a son. Is something about to happen? Look out for a baby in the Bible. They're a sign of the sheer sovereignty and grace of God. What can anyone know about what a child will do when a child is born? A new mom might see her child crawling early and think, maybe he's a genius. I'm going to Google how to know if your baby is a genius. And she can do that if she wants, but it's a guess. But God is not guessing. He is deciding and he is saying so. He is announcing that a child will come. And you can see it by the kind of obstacles these babies dodge. Where you find God promising a baby, you will often find a tyrant on a killing spree. Pharaoh, then Herod. The promise of this baby is good news if you believe God's word. Otherwise, it's just a baby. A third word, God. Verse six, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Mighty God is not and was not on the popular baby's name lists. Neither were the others on this list. This must be serious. I was trying to think of a parallel. You're at college having difficulty and dad shows up from out of town. Your boss flies in for a surprise talk or the sheriff knocks. When God comes to town, it must be because this is a job for God, something that can't be delegated and this is the case. The problem of humanity is such that God must come down personally and save. It is not something that can be done, this salvation that we need by anyone else but him. And if these are the king's names to come, just imagine, imagine his kingdom. Here's a fourth word, zeal, verse seven. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, the Lord wants to. He really, really, really cares to save his people. He really doesn't want to let them go where they wish. We watched Rudolph this last week. A pretty darn unrealistic film. Reindeer don't fly and bumbles don't bounce. But there was an aspect of this film that was profoundly realistic. It's where Rudolph has disappeared and then the parents go out after him and don't return. Three months they're gone, why? Because they haven't found Rudolph yet. And that's what parents do, they have zeal for their children. They will be driven for the care and the saving of their children at almost any cost. 
And God is zealous for this mission. He has created humanity in his image and humans bear his image. And he is zealous to see his glory fill the earth through those who bear his image and reflect that glory everywhere. And that is his plan through the Bible's story. And so he comes, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the first ray of sunshine, God with us. Here's a second ray, God for us. Turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. If the first ray of Isaiah's son told us who would come to save, this ray will tell us how he will save. How will he save? Why, why does God have to come down? To show us how to love, to show us or to teach us how to live, to clean demon house and heal. He does all of these things, but why must he come down? That's the question. We'll find out. And if the first ray of sunshine from Isaiah leads to the incarnation, then this second ray leads us to the crucifixion. If the first ray told us who was in that manger, the second ray will tell us what he was doing on the cross exactly. And if the first ray told us that the zeal of the Lord would lead him to send a child, this second ray will show us just how great that zeal is. To see what's here, we need to focus on a particular word, a particular subject of the servant. Remember that, the servant. We'll be skipping like a stone between chapters 42 through 53 where there are four what we call servant songs, poems about the servant. And as we read, if I could ask, let's, you'll recognize some of this language here, but let's suspend our sense of where exactly and specifically the story is going, namely Jesus. And that will help us and you'll see why. Here's the crucial question that will pull us through the section. Bible study time. Who is the servant? Let's start here in Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. In this very part of Isaiah, he is speaking actually through Isaiah to the nations, nations broken and battered by their sin and the judgment for their sin, to a world in spiritual ruins, paralyzed by their own idolatry, reeling in chaos and violence. Does that sound familiar? And he says there is hope for a just world, and that hope is in a servant. How will he bring it about? Well, here's how he won't bring it about. We'll start there, verse two. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Unlike the world's regimes, he won't bring it by yelling and by parades and by propaganda. Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And so unlike the world's regimes, he will not bring it about by brute force or oppression. 
Verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And so unlike the world's regimes, he will not fail in his plans. He will not run out of resources. He will not be stopped by his opposition. He says to this servant now in verse six, so now he's speaking to the servant, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. The servant will put this place right. The servant is God's answer to the world's troubles. But then, thank you very much Isaiah, like a good preacher, he startles us and he confuses us and even shocks us. Look at verse 18 in chapter 42. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who's he talking about? Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind but my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trampled in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we've sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, and he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. God's servant is blind. Who is the servant? Well, first he told the servant that he was the light to the nations, an agent by which God will bring justice and create a just world. And now he's telling the servant that he's blind. The servant was a savior, and now the servant is actually a failure in its mission in need of saving. And in terms of the servant's identity here, it's clearly his people Israel. And even before the passage we read in the beginning of chapter 42, Israel is specifically identified as the servant in chapter 41. And who has judged them so? Well, it's the Lord. They were called to be a light to the nations. Israel was to be a redeemed humanity, bearing God's law, delighting in the law of the Lord and magnifying the glory and faithfulness of God through faithful obedience, but there was none of the sort. And even they can't see the Lord chastises them with exile, but like a stubborn child, they won't even take that to heart. So where is the hope for the world if God's servant is blind? How do these two portraits of the servant fit? More to the point, what hope is there for humanity if the servant fails? 
This is the question we're to be asking at this moment in Isaiah's prophecy. Thankfully, there are more servant songs to come. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. We'll start in verse three here. Isaiah 49, and remember our question, who is the servant? This is kind of like sermon lab. There's a way to preach this, but I decided to drag you through it with me. I think it'll be good for us. Verse three of chapter 49, who is the servant? And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Israel, the nation, right? Not so fast. Verse five. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the mother's womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Israel, in this case, is distinct from the servant. Thus says the Lord, verse seven, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and rise princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. How beautiful is this? That Adam sinned against God and hid from God and blamed Eve for it. But God would not let humanity go. And Abraham wasn't looking for God, but God came to him with the promise that his children would make a whole new humanity and bless the whole world. And they would be God's people, a holy nation, and through them, the world blessed. Israel, the nation of Abraham's children, worships other gods. The hope for humanity, a hopeless mess. But God does not let them go. And God sends his servant. He's everything Israel was to be. Perfectly obedient. A light for the world. And he is sent to rescue Israel. But Israel abhors him, it says. And yet God does not hit eject on his plan or on humanity. And it gets more beautiful still. Turn with me to chapter 52 of Isaiah. Chapter 52. We'll start in verse 13. This is the last of four servant songs. However can God's people Go from darkness to light. How will the problem of human sin at the heart of every human be resolved with God's holiness? I hear you're not supposed to stare at an eclipse of the sun. It's deceptive. It it looks like a black spot in the sky, but it has a, a ring of sun's light around it and it can burn your eyes. I don't know if that's true, but I was told not to look at it. We'll pretend either way. We're staring right now at a dark, dark, dark moment. Humanity's worst. And yet this is the brightest moment for us at the same time. And so now, my friends, you may suspend your sense of where the story is going. 
Verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. What will he look like? Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so that so, uh, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And so what will this servant do? Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And why has the servant deserved this? What did he do? Well, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of the people, and yet they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So then why is he subjected to this? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of this servant's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes, and makes intercession for the transgressors. My friends, this morning, we have taken the scenic route to the cross of Jesus Christ at Calvary. And in this last chapter, which we have read, we get the Bible's clearest explanation as to what is happening on that cross. 
it is as though we have x-ray glasses on to see into a dimension that we cannot see with our eyes. Or like Frodo's ring when he puts it on and he can see the spiritual, we might call it, realm. The crowd at the cross sees a bloody, weak man that must die. But we see the Lord of glory, Emmanuel, God with us, on a cross dying, God for us, because he must die if we're to be saved. And if the scenic route was a lot to take in, verse 11 focuses this ray of sun into a laser of a sentence. Look at verse 11 of 53. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so Jesus did two things on the cross as he hung there. He was taking something from us, our iniquities, and he was giving something to us his righteousness, or as the New Testament says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, in God's servant, we might become the righteousness of God. And so the black hole of the human heart has sucked in and devoured the Son of God, God with us. But as John wrote, the light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so our problem has never been science or smarts, but a problem of sin and the soul. And the Lord came down to save gently and lovingly and with justice. And we beat him to a pulp and hung him to die. And the crowds were filled with every kind of person, every kind of temperament, every kind of personal history, instigators and followers alike. But God did not let humanity go. In fact, he was reaching out by means of his cross. And so the question for you is this. Is Christ and his cross your light? Is it the difference between darkness and light for you in this life, in the face, in the shadow of death, and in the next? Is Jesus Christ your sunrise? Is he the one who takes from you the darkness of your sin and your guilt for it and who gives to you his righteousness? And by taking Jesus as your righteousness, it does not mean that you're poof made as Jesus is righteous. It means that before God, you are counted as righteous as Jesus himself was righteous and that God looks on your sin no more. The cross is the only way to that kind of standing before God. God with us, God for us. And now a third ray of sunshine from Isaiah. God over us, God over us. Turn to chapter 60 with me. If the first ray of sunshine answered the question, who will come to save? And if the second ray answered the question, how will he save? And this third ray answers the question, what kind of incredible, astounding, and brilliant salvation must he bring? The last chapters of Isaiah highlight the coming reign of the Messiah. 
We almost have, we do. Jesus' incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection and ascension and coming again in the book of Isaiah, called the Gospel of Isaiah. The last chapters highlight the coming of the Messiah and his brilliant kingdom, which he will usher in. And this is where so many of our promises of the new creation come. If you were to read through the rest of the book, you might recognize some language in there from the New Testament and from the preaching that you sit under. The chasing our theme of light, let's pay attention to the first verses of chapter six, 60, excuse me, where we hear this. Arise and shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising." Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. And the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Arise and shine for your light has come. Words of Isaiah for his first hearers as they looked forward to the Lord's coming from within their darkness. Words for those waiting for the Messiah as Jesus was born. Remember what the wise men brought, gold and frankincense and praises to God. And words for you and for me when we come in from the dark and admit that's exactly where we've been stubbornly living. The light of Jesus' brightness brightens our lives so that we shine and so that we are radiant. And so this command to rise and shine is for you and me to come into the light, to Jesus' light, and then like, I don't know, something that's glow in the dark, Jesus' light emanates through us, and our faces are bright with his glory. And of course, as we know from the way we understand our Bibles, when Jesus comes and he saves us now, his work is not complete until he returns and turns again and brings in a new creation where this will at that time be all the more perfectly true. For when we see Jesus face to face, we will be like him as he is, radiant and beautiful. Ever try to check a flashlight to see if it's working during the day and you stare into it and ask, is this thing on? And you can't tell? because the brightness of the sun has overwhelmed the brightness of the flashlight? Well that, my friends, is God's light and what he will do to the sun. We could stare at it all day and not be able to tell if it's on when Christ comes again. Hey, where's the sun? Oh yeah, we can't see it anymore if it's there at all. Oh yeah, that's right in the days when we lived in darkness. That's right, this world for all of its beauty and light will be as nothing when compared to the light of the ages to come and the light 
in our eyes from Christ. Isaiah 60, verse 19. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. So my friends, what we have heard from Isaiah are three rays of sunshine that emanate into Zechariah's heart at the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus at the first dawning of the light of God. I'm sure I brightened my mom's life, but not that much. For us kids, it was an overstatement. But for Jesus, it is no overstatement to say that he is the son visiting his people. It is the best we can do with language. It is but a flash of what's to come. So may we never lose our sense of expectation for all that God has promised and planned for us in Jesus Christ. No, better put, may we ever grow in expectation for what God has promised and planned for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, how sweet it is to walk along the ground of such a majestic work as Isaiah's prophecy and to train our eyes on the Son of Christ and his rays which emanate from these pages. Father, may the light of Jesus Christ radiate through our church and on our faces and from our hearts in such a way that the world looks on the church and sees the light of the world, Jesus Christ through her. And Father, may we, though we reflect him now, look forward to the day when we see him face to face and reflect him fully. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.